edition of Econo Day Unplugged. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of September 2020. As ever, Mark Pender is across the pond stateside, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Earlier this week, the number of COVID-19 cases around the world moved above the 31 million mark, underpinning already rising investor concerns that global economy is about to take a fresh hit from a second virus wave. And that with GDP in many countries still not within sight of their pre-pandemic levels, and in a lot of cases, growth having slowed significantly in the last month or so. That's prompted a pullback in the broader equity markets, um, but it's been to the benefit of government bonds while on the currency markets. Safe haven buying has also boosted the dollar to well, at least two months highs against the likes of the euro. So, Mark, it's certainly not good news on the coronavirus. Um, obviously, we just had some um, flash PMI data, which everyone looks yeah. at for the latest insight into how the economy is going. What's uh-huh. it look like from your side? Well, we just got them right now, uh, and this is uh, Wednesday morning uh, here in the U.S. We got um, very, uh, you know, these are uh, 54.6 for services and 55.3 for manufacturing. These are both over 50. They're actually kind of ideal rates. If if this was in the middle of a, uh, you know, of a stable situation. Thank these you very would be, much, yes. <laughs> These would be, you know, marvelously sustainable, yeah. uh, predictable, uh, very, very, uh, you know, over a long period of time. These, these would be very strong period uh, of, of rates of uh, monthly growth. But, you know, um, we're dealing with. Is it with, well spread? I mean, is it like current output and new orders? And what's the orders side doing? It, it looks pretty good. And it's also balanced between manufacturing and services. Uh, mm. So that's the first balance. And both samples, uh, you know, details are limited in, in what market economic provides to the general public. Um, but uh, the descriptions of new orders are, are uh, solid, uh, solid growth there. Both backlogs appear to be building in both uh, groups, though at a slowing uh, rate. Employment is also kind of uh, it, it typically or often is is in line with backlogs. So, um, uh, but apparently it too has been uh, slowing. So there's not a lot of employment growth, but the orders look good and production and output uh, looks good. And the price data shows uh, uh, pressure in, uh, for both inputs and selling prices. And so it's like an ideal looking. In, in a in normal situation, this would be exactly what you want. Not overheating, not too cool, everything, you know, steady Freddy. But uh, it's not. And so I think it probably w- is a deceptive. Now, the ISM's uh, uh, sam- service and manufacturing samples, and they're a, a, a different group, a, a longer standing group that's been doing it, have been showing uh, greater rates of growth than the market uh, samples. Uh, so really, market is kind of just caught up with uh, with the ISM samples. But the, what the, you know, it, it does suggest uh, that um, uh, there is optimism in these samples. I mean, it's not bubbling with optimism, and there is caution given COVID and also the election. And, you know, and also the un- unemployment here in the U.S., still more than 10 million people are unemployed and uh, or greater than uh, what it was before the, um, the virus. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of demand that has disappeared. And 
with COVID issues reappearing in Europe, that's one trading partner that may not be accelerating uh, their purchases. So um, it's really, it's kind of a, it, it's hard to tell. Now for an optimist, you can, you can grab a hold of this and go. Um, but uh, I think probably a cautious, more realistic view would be an order which would suggest that even though it looks stable right now, and it's been stable for the last uh, several months in this report, it could be a bumpy time ahead. So now let me turn this to you because what we saw in Europe, which released their PMIs earlier, was especially outstanding in Germany, was a feature was this uh, separation between manufacturing and services. Manufacturing, they're doing very well, at least in this one month, and services uh, not doing well at all. Yeah, that's right. I must say, just in terms of the broader picture, I think there'll be a, a number of um, European policymakers looking across to your side, thinking that uh, the Eurozone, wishing rather, I should say, that the Eurozone economy is performing half as well. As you mentioned, so kickoff is sort of the headline figures. I mean, the, the flash composite output index, so the, uh, the GDP proxy, if you like, for the Eurozone in September was just 50.1. So to all intents and purposes, uh, the economy was just stagnating. Now, that was down from from 51.9, uh, the final reading in August, which in itself only suggested you know, a very sluggish rate of growth from what's been an exceptionally weak base. So the general overall picture of the eurozone economy, it just in itself, is is kind of worrying. I think as far as the policymakers are concerned at the moment. But also, as you mentioned, we do have a very marked division between what's going on in manufacturing and in services. As you mentioned, for for Germany, um, it was it was particularly marked. We had a manufacturing index of what up at 56.6, which is a particularly strong number, a multi-year high, in fact, as far as Germany is concerned. And that contrasted with services moving back into negative growth territory at 49.1. And that was reflected in the overall Eurozone picture as well. So manufacturing there was up at 53.7, which, as you were saying, um, from equivalent almost from your side, if that was a, a number in more normal times for the Eurozone, that would actually constitute a pretty good reading. Um, but that 53.7 um, can contrast very sharply with 47.6 on services. Now, that's a four month trough and really suggests that, you know, services have perhaps peaked already. And uh, possibly it's the case that the, the COVID restrictions we've got in place at the moment and which indeed will be increasingly in place as they bring in new measures over the coming months. It could mean that that's already putting some kind of lid on demand for the you know, service sector output. If that is the case, then that's going to be a real problem because it's going to mean that you know, the, the Eurozone economy is close to topping out when it's still the best part of what, 10 percent or so, I suspect, below where it was before the, uh, before the uh, pandemic itself actually hit. So numbers here worrying. And I suppose if we go back to the first wave, you know, one of the patterns we saw there was, OK, the big hit right across the economy. But we did see services being hit significantly harder than manufacturing, particularly in the opening months. And I think you know, just the nature of what we've seen in the September data, that's going to you know, agitate worries that, well, look, perhaps this is the same sort of thing happening now. Um, so it's so far not so good, I think, as far as Europe's concerned. And I think from the way the economy is performing, even prior to today's numbers, there's been some hints coming out, certainly from the likes of the ECB, to the effect that, well, look, this economy is going to need more help from some shape or form. 
um, Christine Lagarde, ECB president last week, was yeah, kind of intimating that you know, there are still a lot of problems. You know, the COVID situation remains very uncertain. Um, what are we going to do? And there's more room to, to um, increase quantitative easing or do something with quantitative easing if necessary. Uh, and indeed, there was an article, I think, in what's the Financial Times beginning of this week, which was suggesting that was the ECB was already undertaking a, a wholesale review of its uh, pandemic emergency purchase program. Now, that's subsequently been denied by the ECB, but on the grounds there's probably no smoke without fire. I think your markets now are starting to contemplate the idea that we could see an additional easing of policy coming out of the ECB at their next meeting on October the 29th, or if not then, perhaps um, at the December the 10th one when they'll be updating their economic forecasts. But it's, um, yeah, it's not a particularly good picture as far as Europe's concerned at the moment. Well, uh, let me just add that the Japanese uh, PMI uh, came out, and they're the uh, weakest of all, uh, 47.3 for manufacturing, and uh, it hasn't been showing any life there, and services at 45.6. So they're seeing quite a, a significant uh, COVID uh, um, uh, effect, and uh, and that's not very good for the U.S. because the Japanese and Europeans are big uh, partners. And, yeah, sure. Um, and if they're uh, Japanese, have never really come. Their, their PMIs uh, and they've been among their uh, uh, data in general have been pretty soft uh, th- through uh, tailing uh, during the COVID crisis here. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, uh, I just so I just wanted to throw that in. Let me pass it back. No, it's to interesting because as we had the uh, BOJ meeting the other day and they kept policy on hold. Um, but they actually upgraded their domestic growth forecasts. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not, you know, they end up having to, you know, take it back again in the light of the way these PMI numbers are coming in. Um, In terms of policy, I want to ask you about fiscal, because last week just talked, well, touched on what's going on in Europe. I suppose just just quickly, a a very quick update on that on that one. Of course, you know, the the ECB is looking across to the European Commission about, look, what how's this, you know, recover and resilience facility, as they call it, getting on. This is the uh, what 670 billion euro package, which is part of the EU so-called next generation plan, this 750 billion package. Well, as things currently stand, EU announced um, last week that member states uh, would need to submit their recovery and resilience plans. Though this is for people, like those countries which want to receive some funds, they actually have to say why they want them. Um, now, the deadline for that is actually as late as the 30th of April 2021. Um, so it looks as if you know this thing is going to be a long way coming through. But, but Jeremy, that doesn't make any sense. This is emergency stimulus, right? It's supposed to be emergency stimulus, but they actually, at the moment, I mean, the EU Commission said, where are we? It's last week that it wants the package in place by January the 1st of 2021. So they're not expecting it to be passed through the European Parliament and all the national individual parliaments until we get to the back end of this year. So although it is the case, in theory, it's kind of been agreed, obviously subject to some of the hungry problems we talked about last week, in terms of its actual delivery, making a blooming difference to the, you know, to the Eurozone real economy, this month's away. Hence, we're back to the poor old ECB again, mm-hmm. which made me wonder, there's been all this, you know, this fiscal policy package touted your side of the water. Where do mm-hmm. we stand on that? And you know, I suppose your numbers perhaps aren't increasing the pressure for a fiscal pressure. For no, fiscal well, that's right. Here. Well, where we stand is up in the air. But you're you're exactly good answer, right. Good <laughs> but you're exactly right. The data that's ex- aside from employment, um, 
much of the data that we've been seeing, and really aside from the production, uh, uh, industrial production side of the economy, uh, things are, 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 are looking pretty good, or things are improving along with um, the infection rates have, are, are stable. Uh, so uh, lockdowns here are, are limited. Um, so there would be every reason uh, to uh, to think that you know, and like we were saying beginning with the PMIs, every reason to think that this uh, 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 recovery is you know uh, standing on its own and is able to uh, move forward. But uh, as far as so so the pressure for fiscal stimulus is is uh, limited. Also, we have. This morning we had the FHFA house price index, and that, in 30 years of data, they've never seen uh, a strong price growth as they did in June and July. So the housing market. And before that, we have we're getting new home sales tomorrow, which are expected to push even further beyond their pre-virus level. We had existing home sales yesterday, which did press uh, further. Beyond the housing market here is on fire, and so that's another reason. And is that every, um, is that generally, or is it in certain parts of the country? The greatest there's a there's a definite spread in uh, uh, housing demand in the U.S. It's the the greatest demand uh, uh, tends to be out west. Um, it's a smaller market. Um, in general, so it has a, a, a lower uh, established base of housing, so you get bigger mo- percentage movements over there. You get uh, general weakness in the uh, Midwest, uh, uh, Central and Upper Midwest, also uh, in the Mid-Atlantic states, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, those area, uh, uh, those areas. And uh, although Maryland can be a very good market, but um, uh, so there is uh, a, a, a regional differences, but on net, and but those have those are generally stable uh, through the years, and so, but on net, uh, what, what we're seeing here is across the board a uh, huge lift in housing demand um, that belies or uh, reveals the details of the unemployment situation here, that it's centered in the uh, lower wage group and not the upper wage group, and that this group is enjoying a high uh, stock price values, uh, continuing to enjoy uh, you know, uh, a, a generous employment with low interest rates, you're seeing and this COVID effect, you're seeing this huge move into U.S. housing. So that's another factor that pushes the urgency for fiscal uh, policy away. <coughs> Excuse me. But as far as uh, what's going to happen, it looks to be an abeyance here until uh, the election. Um, and then and then after that, we'll see what happens as far on the fiscal side. The Fed is already in trying to do all it can. There's nothing else it can do right now. And so I think we're just going to have to sit tight and see. Um, you know, how the election plays out and then uh, what kind of government, uh, if it's a unified government or if it's a, 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 if there's, a, you know, a conflict government uh, a contention, then we'll, that would, you know, limit the amount of fiscal possibilities. But it's too early to say here. I, I don't think there's going to be any developments in, uh, until the election. 
Mm, okay, fair enough. Yeah, housing market-wise, I suppose Europe's a bit harder to sort of ascertain the, the quarterly the housing price figures out of the eurozone. They release on a quarterly basis. We don't have second quarter data as of yet, so it's really difficult to say what's going on there. Um, looking at the the borrowing for house purchase figures, they've been running pretty flat on a growth growth uh, annual growth rate at around about three percent or so in recent months. So it looks as if it's still chugging along, but certainly nothing like the kind of strength we see in your side. But it's got to be. So the UK housing market is doing well. Um, house prices over here have more than recovered uh, their pre-pandemic levels. Indeed, they're running at record highs now. And of course, the, the UK housing market, there's a lot of uh, homeowners in the UK. And so it's a particularly important uh, part of how the UK economy performs. And the government's been doing its best to keep that going. So he introduced a, a temporary increase in the stamp duty land tax threshold. That was from £125,000 to £500,000. Um, a few months ago now, and that certainly seems to have helped to underpin demand. So uh, we've seen a pretty strong housing market in the UK as well. Um, and that's probably just as well, because I mean, just going back to this COVID issue, I think you know, things across Europe at the moment are looking uh, pretty grim as far as the overall uh, European picture. Um, well, yeah, well, they're coming out with the word second wave. Did I see Boris Johnson using that word? Or who did I see using the yeah, word you second did. wave? Yeah, he was talking in the House of Commons yesterday when he was announcing a new set of measures. Um, and it's not just him either. Effectively, the World Health, Health Organization is talking the same thing as is the, uh, the European um, Center for Prevention of Disease. So we currently, as, as we record this, I mean, European new cases now, uh, in, as Europe as a whole, have exceeded those reported during uh, the peak of the pandemic back in what April, May time. So you know, there was a sharp decline in cases in subsequent months until over the last four to five weeks, we've seen this very rapid pickup. Um, there's been huge numbers coming out of the lights of France and Spain in particular. And so we are at this stage now whereby there's a whole raft of new measures being introduced by different countries. Now, at this stage, no individual country wants to reinitiate any kind of a, a complete blanket lockdown. You know, that did so much damage to the economies in the, in the first wave. They really don't want to have to do it again. It would be a last resort. Nonetheless, we are seeing bits and pieces of restrictions being introduced. Say for the UK yesterday, things like, you know, the pubs and restaurants will have to close at 10 o'clock. There'll be a curfew on them then. And some other bits and pieces of package, which you know, ultimately will translate into, you know, some kind of loss of economic growth. So what we're seeing at the moment, I think it you know, does suggest that European outlook is that much worse now than it was, let's say, a month or so ago. And I guess that's one reason why you know, we've certainly seen a bit of a pullback in uh, the euro. You know, not so long ago, euro dollar was trading up around the 120 mark was well, we speak well it's 1.167 so it it does appear to be the case that uh, investors reacting to some of the bad news coming out of europe on that particular front well I, i'd like to go back to the some of the good news and that was that german manufacturing pmi now i know that they don't give very many details in that report but what's your hunch where was there where, where was their strength where, where would that appear would it be in autos uh, in, in, well the, in, in, yeah I mean I think it we obviously as you say we don't we don't get the details on that yet um, we will do we'll get more of it when we actually get the official orders data coming through from the federal stats office but that's a while away yet but yes already we have seen a very sharp recovery in the auto sector which is you know the key area of uh, German manufacturing so I suspect it means that you know, we've seen continued strong growth coming for uh, German auto uh, producers uh, during the course of September. Now, whether or not that's going to continue, 
Um, we don't know. I mean, from the, the breakdown of the orders data we've had in earlier months, it looks as if there's been, you know, some increase in domestic demand. To If anything, no, a, a stronger gain in overseas demand. But if we're going to start to see these COVID numbers rising generally, then, well, it remains to be seen whether or not that's going to be the case. But yes, as things currently stand, German manufacturers are actually in quite, quite good shape at the moment. And indeed, there was a report from the German Retailers Association, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, intimating that they think consumption, German household consumption is going to be a good deal stronger over the second half of this year than they originally expected as well. And I suppose it, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to, well, why is that? Well, COVID cases in Germany compared to the rest of Europe are still pretty low. There does appear to be faith in Angela Merkel's government and way it's, you know, the, the, the testing and tracing and, and the various restrictions they put in, how they've been handled. Um, and so, so far, it appears that Germany is going to be one of the best performers on that front so um and that's ultimately of course will be good news for the rest of the eurozone because germany obviously dominates you know, aggregate demand there uh, let's turn to uh, uh switzerland now they have a a policy meeting uh tomorrow now aside and just as, as a segue to go into the bank issue is uh aside from finance what what, what is their strength in? what is their economic uh, uh strength well, obviously, it's the financial sector which dominates the Swiss economy. So where that goes, pretty well, Switzerland goes as well. Otherwise, I suppose you know their their main interest is going to be in the chemicals industry and things like you know clocks and watches, where they export a massive amount as well. Um, but it's really the financial side of things which I guess you know Switzerland tends to you know tends to be one of the world leaders in. Um, with regards, though, to Swiss National Bank, as you mentioned, we will get this meeting uh, tomorrow. Expectations there really for no change in policy, which I guess in some ways could be slightly misleading. Um, and really, it's as we talked about on previous podcasts, so much of this comes down to what's happening with the Swiss franc and particularly the euro Swiss, Swiss franc um, exchange rate. Since their last meeting in June, uh, we've actually seen the Swiss franc lose ground against the euro. It's lost, lost what, about a couple of percentage points, something Which like Which is, for the SMB, that's good. Which for the SMB, that is very good. The big problem for the SMB, um, well, obviously what's going on in the real economy, but they've been stuck with a negative inflation rate for months now. Um, they try to keep inflation close to the 2% mark. And although, OK, we know it's kind of COVID and the real economy, perhaps it matters more at the moment. But they've been struggling to you know, really prevent a, a deflationary environment in Switzerland. And so long as we've got a very strong Swiss franc and we're talking as, as we speak, where are we? We're about um, just on 10, just around about 107 uh, euro Swiss franc at the moment. So 1.07 francs. Well, that, the Swiss authorities used to have a lower floor. So this is Swiss francs per um, euro. They used to have a lower floor back at few years ago at 1.20. So effectively, you know, this currency has been trading 10% plus below that level, i.e. on the strong side against the euro for the last several years now. And that's certainly been reflected in this constant downward pressure on Swiss import prices. It's led to inflation being either very close to zero or for the last several months now, you know, below zero and no sign of it increasing again. So so the, uh, if I remember the numbers, the Swiss CPI is a little bit in the negative range or a bit in the negative range as opposed to everyone else who's basically around flat or a little bit above it. Is that right? That's general characterization? 
Yeah, that, that's pretty well right. I mean, Swiss, in, in that difference, we can attribute to the strength of the Swiss franc. In many ways, well, certainly part of that, I think we most definitely can do. Because it's not just the case that you know we've seen the odd blip up in the Swiss franc. It's been running at what the SMB called you know, highly valued rates for some considerable time now. I mean, headline headline inflation in Switzerland. Let me think. As of August, it was zero. Prior to that, is not minus 0.2 percent. So it's been you know zero to a small negative number for a long while now. But if we look at the breakdown of this, I'm domestic. The domestic component of consumer prices in Switzerland are actually slightly positive. The problem is, though, that the import component of the CPI is running at about minus three percent or so. So this is where this is what's dragging down the overall CPI. So in other words, it's really very much a reflection of you know, Swiss franc strength pushing down, reducing import prices, which then duly helped to depress the overall level of consumer prices. Now, that has meant that for some considerable while now, as we um, as mentioned, the uh, Swiss National Bank's policy has been tied to what's happening to the Swiss franc. The fact that the Swiss franc is a little bit weaker against the euro than it was back in the June meeting when they didn't do anything doesn't guarantee, but strongly suggests that they won't be doing it this time round either. However, that said, although there's been no change in interest rates uh, for some well, for a long while now, their so-called policy rate stands at minus 0.75 percent. So it is waste, you know, it's one of the most negative central bank policy rates anywhere, simply because of the currency issues. Um, but what they have been doing quite steadily is intervening behind the scenes. Um, so even though we've got, say, this weaker Swiss franc, the, uh, the site deposit figures at the Swiss National Bank suggest that the, the, the SMB has been really intervening quite steadily over what well pretty well since beginning of July time right through into uh, the latest latest weeks so they're operating in the background trying to prevent the Swiss franc from appreciating any further were we to see let's say you know, a really big burst of COVID which translates into this mass panic and buying of safe haven instruments obviously the dollar would do well, do well there but within Europe would almost certainly see a move back into the Swiss franc again and that's when the question is what would they do would they actually take interest rates down even further they don't want to they certainly don't want to do that but you know they might have to so i think at this stage policy tomorrow looks most likely to be left on hold but the risks at this stage remain very much it will have to come out and and ease yet further you know we were talking uh, uh recently about uh foreign exchange policy and central banks and how it uh is not a part of actually the last press conference, I, I, uh, I guess it was last week. There was not a single question. On the, it was an hour long, and not a single. And in the policy statement, you could not find the word dollar. So um, it's interesting in, because it, yeah, that is well, increasingly the opposite to over yes, here. Yes. Well, and I saw, and I want to go to the New Zealand Reserve Bank had a statement today, and uh, it mentioned the possibility of buying foreign assets and presumably that would help uh it limit the appreciation of uh, of the new zealand currency but um you know crossing i i can understand why the fed wouldn't want to cross that line uh, it would just be one more thing they'd end up having to manipulate the dollar all the time uh but i guess the swiss and uh, is is that how you read the did you read the new zealand um reserve bank of new zealand statement 
I did. I mean, I think it's interesting. You say um, they came out well earlier on. Um, they didn't actually change their you know, their overall policy in the stance stance in the sense that the official cash rate stays at 0.25 percent, and the large scale asset program that was still held at what 100 uh, billion New Zealand dollars. Um, but they did also come out and say that they they're making significant progress looking at additional instruments, which might include a sort of funding for lending program. So basically lending to the bank on the condition that they on lend into the real economy and that's something which the Bank of England and the Treasury over here have been using quite effectively uh, for some considerable while now and they may be looking at other instruments notably including possibly you know a negative um, OCR and there's been now some speculation that uh, the official uh, cash rate might actually go below zero at the beginning of next year um, and part and parcel of that yes I mean they the problem for the likes of the commodity based currencies is that they do get you know, swung about a lot by what's happening to commodity prices. Um, and they've been concerned, I think, by the rise of the New Zealand dollar over the course of the last few months. However, again, we go back to the COVID situation, though. If we see a hit to global growth due to COVID and we get the repeat of what happened back in what March and April, then commodity prices go down, all prices in particular go down, and those commodity linked currencies will come under pressure. And part and parcel of that you know, would be the New Zealand dollar alongside the likes of, well, you know, Mexican peso and the Canadian dollar and the Norwegian kroner and currencies like that. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting on this currency side, because um, Christine Lagarde, for the second time in a week, um, mentioned the uh, the euro in the context of it being an important you know, factor in setting monetary policy. Now, they're always going to come out and say, of course, we don't target the euro. But I think what she's trying to do is sell a message to the market you know, whereby, well, look, if this euro continues to be strong, and as she points out, it's putting downward pressure on imported inflation into the eurozone, which is not what they want with inflation so low. I mean, it's already below zero at the moment. You know, then it could ultimately mean that the strong currencies, although they're not going to intervene, against it. It could be one of those factors which, you know, is part of the jigsaw which causes them to come out and increase quantitative easing. So currency issues at the moment, I think, are very much an issue of to the front in Europe, simply because you've got such weak growth, you don't want anything which is going to dampen it. And obviously, the stronger is your currency, the less competitive you are. Mm. So it's going to be interesting on that front. OK, um, as always, you were probably been talking for far too long. Is there anything else we should mention? Um, well, what's it like? At the, I mean, the COVID increase in the UK, is it a big concern? I mean, the yeah, press over is. here. It is. I mean, I think the statement made by the, by the prime minister yesterday. Well, I say the statement by the prime minister. I think the numbers over here have been surprising. I mean, they've taken off quite dramatically over the course of the last couple of weeks or so. And for the prime minister to come out and announce you know, a new set of restrictions, which, to be honest, could have been a lot tighter, he's effectively intimated they're going to be with us into the beginning of next year. Well, is, so. there a re is it a reason? I mean, is it did they reopen the schools? Was it the well, parks being open too late? But it's part and parcel of the same thing. I think, yes, it is. Basically, it's just a reflection of the fact that the UK economy has been steadily reopening. You know, the schools have all gone back. You know, the pubs and the bars and all these have, have reopened, albeit with social distancing. And it's got to be said, some of this social distances, distancing has been blatantly flouted by um, parts of the population. It doesn't take much of that you know, to cause it to spread again. Um, but I think, you know, the bad news over here is that what's been announced so far is actually quite lightweight. If we compare to what Scotland have just introduced, they've introduced much tighter regulations. They set their own 
um, by the Scottish Parliament up up there. And I think what they've done is probably going to be a precursor to what we're going to have to do over here, which is not a complete lockdown, but moving back towards a sort of a lockdown environment. I, I um, saw Wales was up too with lockdowns. Yeah, that's right. I mean, really, England is currently sort of you know, lagging behind what the uh, what the smaller parts of Great Britain are doing at the moment. Um, so I think there's a real risk that we will go down the same route. And if that is to be the case, um, yeah, yes, it's got to increase the likelihood of additional you know, policy reactions easing through perhaps a negative interest rate or the bank doesn't seem keen on that at the moment, but almost certainly additional quantitative easing. And indeed, as, as we talked about on previous podcasts, that the furlough uh, program over here, which is supposed to be ending um, at the end of October. There's so much pressure on the Chancellor now to try and extend it. It seems extremely likely it will be terminated completely. There'll be at least some form of targeted furloughing or you know, some kind of new scheme which will have to replace it. Otherwise, unemployment here is going to go through the roof. So, Difficult times and not particularly great ones at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you the last say. Anything else you want to chip in before no, we um, round this off? Well, just take it easy and, and, and wear your mask. So. <laughs> Indeed, it's true. I mean, it's sad state of affairs. You're starting to get used to it now. We all like bank robbers over here. <laughs> OK, then let's round it off for this week. Um, I suppose you've got to say with the virus on the rise again, our policymakers really do face an unenviable task of balancing the need to keep the economic recovery going while at the same time time, not adding to the risks of public safety, Um, all of which makes for a potentially very volatile outlook for financial markets. So even more reason then to keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. On behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.